0: I'm Jennifer Zolidt, and I'm Lark and Bell. Welcome to our podcast A Female Lens. This week we're talking about Bree Larson's inclusive press tour for Captain Marvel. Then we interview film reporter, film critic, and author Alicia Malone about her work in her new book, The Female Gaze. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. This week on Women in Film in the News, we are discussing Captain Marvel and Brie Larson's press tour. Um, We don't know much about superhero movies.
1: Right, because there aren't a lot of
0: female lead superhero movies out there. That's a very good point, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But we're excited about Captain Marvel for a couple different reasons. Um, First, it is the first Marvel movie to feature a female superhero. Yay. Which is awesome. Yeah. And Brie Larson is um, rocking it as the the main character captain marvel there we go <laughs> <laughs> yes um, she is yes she is um, and she also has made a concerted effort to have a more diverse press tour right which is really interesting um,
1: basically last year actually at the it's the crystal and lacy crystal and lucy awards mm-hmm, that's when she talked she with spoke dr about... stacy smith oh, got and it. decided to have a more inclusive
0: and Dr. Stacey Smith is the woman who heads the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Exactly.
1: And she did, she had a report um, from the initiative about uh, women in press, basically, mm-hmm. film critics, and how underrepresented women are. Yeah. And, didn't, and then she spoke out for the Captain Marvel press tour. Exactly. Yeah. So now we're coming back. Mm. And for this press tour, she decided um, this is a quote from her. She said, I started paying attention to what my press days looked like about a year ago and the critics reviewing movies and noticed it appeared to be overwhelmingly white male. So I spoke to Dr. Stacey Smith at the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, who put together a study to confirm that. Moving forward, I decided to make sure my press days were more inclusive.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like that's, again, like a small way. I mean, it's pretty huge, but it's a small way of, again, supporting women in all aspects of the film industry. Um, which is pretty awesome also um we're super excited about captain marvel because it's already smashing box office records and it hasn't even come out yet it comes out march 8th um the pre-sale yeah i think now it's the second highest advanced ticket seller for a superhero origin story two Mm -hmm. weeks prior to its advance um to its release just behind black panther amazing yeah So, um, yay, support women in film. Go see Captain Marvel in theaters. And read reviews written by women. Yes, shout out to Cherry Picks, Mm -hmm. which was a response to Rotten Tomatoes. Um, But it's a website where all the reviews are written by women. So, holler out to them.
1: Yeah, and check out Brie Larson's recent interview with Marie Claire, where um, she handpicked her interviewer, who is Kia Brown. Excuse me if I'm saying that wrong. And, um, Ms. Brown called the opportunity, the biggest opportunity she's had in her career and noted that nobody usually wants to take a chance on a disabled journalist. So Brie Larson handpicked her and was like, Hey, I'm giving this woman an opportunity that she might not normally get. Gotta lift each other up. Yeah. VinoVore is a wine and goods shop with a focus on female winemakers with hundreds of unique and hand-picked bottles from all over the world with something for everyone.
0: Stop by the store in Silver Lake, order online, or join their monthly wine club subscription for a hand-picked selection of wines each month, as well as great perks like 10% off all in-store purchases.
1: Check it out in-store or online at That's vino-vore.com. That's dot ecom Now, here's our interview with Alicia Malone. Alicia is a host on Turner Classic Movies, as well as a film reporter, film critic, writer, and an all-around movie geek. Her first book, Backwards and in Heels, about the past, present, and future for women in Hollywood, was released in August 2017, and her most recent book, The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women, was released in November 2018 and is available in all major bookstores.
0: Enjoy! In high school, you started your own film club where you screened a classic film each week to an audience of one, yourself. (laughs) Later, you worked at a video store in Sydney, Australia, and gave film recommendations to customers whether they wanted them or not. It seems like you're always bursting with this love of film and the desire to share that with others. Where did that love come from, and how has it continued to grow?
2: Well, definitely, my family has always been into films. Um, My mom was the one who took me to see my first film when I was four years old, and that was The NeverEnding Story, which I saw inside a theater. And then she had to take me out of the theater because I got so upset when the horse Died in the swamp. I was just distraught, you know, because I didn't quite realize that it was a movie that I was watching. Uh, My dad used to pull me out of bed to watch classic films, late night television. You know, my sister Yvette would take me to indie films and foreign films. My other sister Natalie would take me to the video store. So it's always been part of my life. But I was thinking about this in the fact that I'm actually kind of quite a shy and introverted person. I don't think people would quite realize that about me. So I always had to think about things in terms of it being a cause that's bigger than myself. I know that sounds really lofty, but ever since I was young, I had that feeling of wanting to share the passion for film and when I thought about it in those terms that I want to help preserve film history share film history talk about women in film talk about classic films or art house films indie films whatever it is then that allows me to get up on stage at assembly and talk to the whole school um, until the principal told me not to get on stage anymore that assembly was for important school notices only um, you know it gave me the confidence to tell strangers at the video store that they should choose something else rather than what they had picked and then right up to writing a book and being on Turner Classic Movies which has such a legacy about it. I can only do it if I think about it as being a cause bigger than myself same with doing TED Talks and everything else so I think that's where the passion and drive comes from and it just gets stronger and stronger you know now living in LA where everybody's involved in film in one way or another, I find myself talking about film 24-7 and I love it. And when I have free time, I watch movies, you know, often at home alone by myself, but I love it. <laughs> it's my preferred state. <laughs>
1: As an author, your work has been geared toward highlighting the accomplishments of women in the film industry throughout history. In your book, Backwards and in Heels, you make the point that in the 1900s through to the early 1920s, there were more female filmmakers actively working at the top of Hollywood than there are today. And during this time, half of all movies made in the U.S. were written by women. Could you tell us more about this and what you discovered in your research?
2: Yeah, that was really interesting, and that was part of the reason I wanted to write my first book, was discovering a fact within a larger book about American film history that said how many women were working at the top of Hollywood and in positions of power uh, right at the beginning of cinema. So I wanted to learn more about that, and there's been a lot of great books written about that in the past, but I hadn't come across that fact before. So delving into that research, I discovered that you know, film started out as a continuation of theatre. So it was very much a creative enterprise. It wasn't about making money. Everybody was doing everything. There wasn't solidified job roles. There wasn't the director who did this and the producer who did that. Everybody was just doing everything, writing, acting, doing their own stunts, and it was very freeform. And a lot of women were involved. And then by the 1920s, it was even seen as advantageous to have a female film director because of the fact that directing requires essentially feminine qualities, right, of being very good at communicating, of being in touch with emotions and being collaborative, you know, it's all things that make sense. So back in that time it was just thought of as quite normal to have a female director, even Universal Pictures who had several female directors on, on their payroll, like 11 who were working... Constantly just making film after film after film, uh, and they even had Universal City where the mayor was Lois Weber, one of the earliest female directors. They used that as publicity, as saying how great it was that they had all these great women working at the studio. Then suddenly everything changed in the mid nineteen twenties, and it basically comes down to money with several factors in that. It always comes back I to know. money. So firstly, there was the Great Depression. And so with that, there was a lot of the independently run studios that couldn't afford to keep making movies. A lot of those studios were run by women. Then you have uh, banks coming into town to finance movies, seeing that as a good investment and uh, needing a return on the investment. So much more focus on it being a profitable business. So studios started being set up as businesses with executive positions. Banks felt more comfortable lending money to men rather than women. At that time, uh, men were put into executive positions. Then they would hire their nephews, their cousins, their male friends. It became a literal boys' club. And then the introduction of sound. A lot of filmmakers couldn't survive that. The biggest sound film was The Jazz Singer, which was created by the Warner Brothers. So these brothers that ran a studio suddenly made this hugely popular film a lot of money it set them up and that studio as being one that is very powerful and then other studios followed and they're all run by men so slowly women got pushed out and it went from being Universal Pictures having 11 female filmmakers on the books in the early 1920s to not hiring a single female filmmaker from I think 1928 right up to 1982. Something like that. I mean, it's crazy how quickly it changed, but women have been fighting their way back in ever since. Okay, this is mind-blowing. Also, (laughs) if it changed that quickly that way, can we change it that fast the other way? Exactly. I mean, that's what I thought about when I was writing my first book was A, once you start hearing about these stories – it reshapes your idea of Hollywood always being a man's world and therefore always needs to be a man's world. And you think about how that idea of a director has changed from being someone that is very communicative and feminine to being this sort of army general with a whip and a bullhorn, you know, yelling instructions, a very masculine view of who a director is. And, yeah, I don't see why we can't change it back if if it was that way in the beginning, I mean, it only helps films, only helps all of us and our experience of movies if we have a variety of people making them. Can you
0: tell us about your work with Turner Classic Movies yeah. and how you got involved with them and, and what you're doing with them now?
2: Yeah, well, that's a really interesting thing, too, because... When I grew up in Australia, we didn't have Turner Classic Movies, but we had a guy who would come on the late night television called Bill Collins, and he was a male film critic, but I loved him, and I would record his intros and end up learning them verbatim, not thinking that that was a job, just I enjoyed what he had to say, and I got annoyed if he got a quote wrong, you know, or that kind of thing. I'd follow him. And so when I moved to America, I already had an idea of Turner Classic Movies and of Robert Osborne because he was larger than life and and transcended Um, boundaries of American television and then once the internet came in before I moved over here I could watch some of his pieces on YouTube and I loved the essential series he did with Drew Barrymore and the way he talked about film and so when I moved over to America and I didn't know anyone I would put on Turner Classic Movies on the TV just to make me feel more at home classic films remind me of home and I started watching it and I thought that's a great job I'd see Ben Mankiewicz and Robert Osborne come up and do their intros And so I got out my notebook one day and I decided to write down a whole list of goals And at the very top was work with TCM. And in brackets, I wrote host question mark, because I was like, I hope that's what I'd love to do. But I didn't see how that's possible. But I just left that there and then slowly has worked towards it. So I did think about it in terms of, okay, if I wanted to be a host on TCM, what are the things I need to do in order to make that dream happen? You got to be an expert in classic film, okay, I've got to learn more, I've got to read more, I've got to watch more, I've got to involve myself more, I've got to, Um, make content about classic films and then you know started telling more people about my dream and then that led me to someone who said oh I know the head of talent at TCM if you would like me to put you in touch this was in I think 2015 if you want me to put you in touch with them let me know and I thought I'm not ready yet. I still got things to work on. Like, I don't think I could go into an audition and feel like I had all the skills needed. So I thought I'll take another year to really practice. I would even copy down the intros from TCM practice, try and think of how I would put my spin on them. And then a year later, I thought I'm ready, sent my show reel in. And that happened to be at the moment they were looking for hosts for Filmstruck. So then I met up with the head of talent and I was talking about not only classic films I love, but foreign films, because that's always been a part of my experience too. And they thought you could be good for Filmstruck. So they flew me to Atlanta to do an audition. And when I got there, because there was no Filmstruck logo or anything up outside the makeup room, they had a little TCM logo with my name underneath for my makeup room. And I said, I'm just going to take a photo of this because I feel like if nothing happens, i have I made it happen. There's the logo, there's my name, I'm here. So I ended up getting the job at Filmstruck. So I was working with the same team at TCM since 2016. And then I always still wanted to be on TCM. So then at the beginning of this year, I got a phone call. I remember I was in New York, it was the blizzard. And I was in a museum and I just got this phone call saying, oh, yeah, guess what? We'd like to put you on air this year. And I was like, yeah, it's dream come true. So, so I've been working with them this whole year, which has been wonderful, and now into 2019. And uh, every Sunday and Tuesdays I introduce the films that are on the channel which is so fun. I watch all the movies. I do all the research. We have writers, but I like to rewrite everything. So it's in my own voice. And again, it just feels like a continuation of everything I've done from when I got up in assembly (laughs) talking about the classic films people should watch. It's just now people listen. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And I feel like that's such a testament to your drive
0: and like commitment to creating your own opportunities. That's incredible. Yeah,
2: I think that's what you have to do. Right. And again, if I thought about it in terms of, I want to be famous, so I want to be on TV, I want followers or money, then that doesn't bring happiness, and I don't think I would have got there. It doesn't bring success, but if you think about it as being, again, that purpose that's bigger than yourself, I thought this is a great way to preserve cinema history and to be involved in that legacy that TCM set up. Can you tell us
1: about your journey writing your books, Backwards and in Heels and The Female Gaze? and if you have any plans for a third book.
2: I know, it's after the first one I said, no, never again, it was so hard. And then a few months later I was like, oh, maybe. So never say never to a third, but uh, it came from doing my first TED talk, which came from just being on YouTube channels uh, where I would talk about women in film and I would start to get a lot of negative comments in the YouTube feed, as you can imagine. And after going through a bit of like depression about it, I decided, no, that just means I need to talk about it more again. I've got a platform. This is a bigger thing than just me. So I'm just going to get out there and keep talking about it till it becomes a normal thing. So from there, I got a call from a TEDx group. You know, TEDx is the independently run TED Talks. And they said, would you like to do a talk based on women in film? That was also on my magic goal list to do a TED Talk one day. So I did one from there, and then from there I got put in touch with a publisher, and they said, would you like to, saw so my TED Talk, said, would you like to write a book on the subject of women in film? And writing a book was also on my <laughs> list of goals. <laughs> and so, and funnily enough with that, with the first book, Backwards in the Heels, I was doing a class at the time to learn how to do book proposals, because I decided it was time that I actually tried to make that dream come true. And so I managed to stay one class ahead of everything the publisher was asking for. <laughs> so they would say, Can you give us a long synopsis, short synopsis? I was like, Yep, I did that in class last week. Here you go. So I got the opportunity to write backwards and in heels, and I didn't realize how. Uh, short the time would be to write because when you think about the publishing timeline unless you're given a long time to go and write a book it becomes very short by the time you add in printing time the layout time the design time everything gets shorter and shorter so I bit off probably more than I could chew by deciding to talk about the entire history of film with <laughs> Backwards in and in Heels in four or five months to write it uh, but I just did it and just and put my head up. And I think that helped me to just keep going through the tough times where I thought this is terrible. No one's going to read this, burn it with fire. What am I doing? Writing a book, a lot of self doubt, you know, and then you come up the other side, you think, oh, this is great. Everyone's going to love this. Uh, so I got through that and then it ended up doing exactly what I wanted it to do in that. I saw so many people who had followed me from other YouTube shows, especially young boys holding this pink book and talking about Alice Ghiblaché and Lois Weber and all the things that they read. And I thought oh that's what it's about you know again that's the purpose so then people started asking me well where do I start with women in film if I want to support them how can I as an audience member do that and so I thought I should put together a little guidebook a little list of some of my favorite films made by women and then I thought I should also include some other female voices in there and some established female film critics and some aspiring female film critics try and open the door in whatever way I can and so that was the female gaze so when the public publisher came back to me and said, would you like to write another book? It would be another quick turnaround time. I thought, okay, I'll limit myself to 30 movies from me, (laughs) another 22 from others, make it 52 movies. And then hopefully it's a nice little coffee table book for people.
0: It's on the coffee table right here. Yeah, I can see it. Right there. It looks good. <laughs> okay, so you are committed to supporting female film critics, which is important because according to the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative Study, only 21.3% of film critics are female. Could you talk about how female film critics help to change the film industry and how women can become more active in reviewing films?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about the amount of talk around this subject because it's something that needs to be discussed and needs to change. Because when I've gone to press screenings, it's often I've been the only woman, there's been no people of color, no women of color especially. And, you know, like making films is more interesting for people watching them if there's a variety of people making them same too with reading film criticism if you only have a very narrow amount of people say just white men writing about film then the perspective gets very small and it doesn't give a true feeling of what a film is an experience is and I think that when you go to watch a film you do take with you your own life experiences you can't just forget at the door that you're a woman or you know that you're a person of color or whatever it is so you come in with that lens you see a film in a very different way to someone else and I think that it helps films if you not to say that all female directed female starring films female critics are gonna love because it's always exceptions but it does help films that have um that are indie that are smaller have a different different people behind the lens if you have more people talking about it a variety of people talking about it maybe people that can relate to that character's experiences more than the established film critics. And the exciting thing now, unlike back in my day, (laughs) before the internet, um, back then you had to wait for someone to give you an opportunity to, to write about film, to talk about film. Now you can just do it yourself. You can start a podcast like you guys. You can do a blog. You can start a YouTube channel. And sure, maybe at first nobody's listening or watching and it's just your parents and your friends, but... Again, if you're doing it for the right reasons, for something that's bigger than yourself, I do believe people will come to it. It also helps because you can practice, you can uh, create a body of work that then when you go to apply for jobs, you have a portfolio to show, you have something to show. Um, you, You might have to do side jobs in the meantime, take work for free, but... If you really want to do it, I, it can really happen. And especially for young women out there wanting to write about film and maybe feeling daunted by it, because again, because of what we study, because of the people who make films, it can seem inaccessible to women. Uh, I encourage them just to start, just to do it themselves and practice and ask advice of people you admire. I get a lot of emails from people. I happily read reviews, give advice, give feedback. Just keep working at it uh, because we need your voices. We need them. You studied film history
1: through a female lens. And we're curious to learn more about the history of The Casting Couch and how it relates to this moment in time with Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement.
2: Yeah, you definitely see when you look at film history that someone like Harvey Weinstein is cut from the same cloth as all the movie moguls we've seen since men took over in the mid-1920s. These men who were very opportunistic uh, had a lot of power and wielded it in horrific ways. It also is understandable that if you treat women like objects on screen that women are more likely to be treated like objects off screen actresses given personas given makeovers that they might not necessarily want put in boxes told what to do not to do and it was just accepted as part of the business the casting couch the idea of having to give sexual favors in order to advance your career uh, being blacklisted if you say no. I mean, this has happened time and time again. Marilyn Monroe was passed around, Rita Hayworth, Harry Cohn. She said no to Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia Pictures, and he vowed to ruin her career as best he could. I mean, it's just happened the whole way through history. But This is the first time ever that people have spoken about it. Again, it was accepted. It was turned, it was blind eye turned to it. It was a joke, the casting couch. Uh, It was like, well, that's what you want to do. If you want to be on camera, this is what you have to do. Uh, But now people standing up, women telling their stories, saying it's not on, uh, creating a community. I think you can't go back from that. So that makes me really optimistic when you look at film history as a whole and you see the peaks and troughs for women and the way that things seem to get better and then go back to normal with men having the majority of power, it gets really depressing. But now I think things are changing. I mean, to have someone like Harvey Weinstein who had so much power be shut out of Hollywood is huge. And I couldn't have imagined that even just two years ago. So I think that things will change from now on. I don't think people know exactly what it's going to look like, how things are going to work. People are still finding their feet. Stories are still unfolding. More men are being toppled. These men that deserve to be good men are trying to figure out their place too. Uh, But it's it's going to look better from now on. So that's really exciting.
0: You've attended and covered numerous film festivals around the world. What's your favorite
2: part about attending (laughs) film festivals? Love film festivals. I love them. And they have such great energy. A great sense of community. You also get to watch films all day, which is my dream. But I like how each festival has a different feeling to it. Sundance in the snow. You don't know anything about the films you're about to see because often they're the first time that it's played. It doesn't even have a trailer. So it's a real excitement of discovery. You have Cannes, which is very glamorous, Black Tie by the French Riviera, Um, and very much where cinema is treated like art and they hold it up to high standards so they'll boo and cheer and get really involved in it. Telluride, which is a film lover's dream, there's no press, no red carpets, no uh, fancy clothes, everyone is just there to watch movies and they're there at 8am in the morning to see films and directors walk down the street, no one bothers them because everyone's just excited to see films. So I love how different they all are and when I'm there, I feel like i found my people, especially with something like a Turner Classic Movies Film Festival. When I went to one of those for the first time, it was like, oh, here you all are. Like, these are all my people. There's people debating film noirs, you know, in one corner and people talking about Marilyn Monroe in another corner and and it felt like I found my community much the same way I imagine that comic book lovers love Comic-Con for that reason, because you find your people. So I just love the energy about them. They're exhausting. During them, I always get sick. I always i am like, oh, I need to eat a vegetable. I need to sleep. But as soon as they're over, I wish I was back there. And I can't wait for the next year of film festivals. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> What prompted your cross-global move to Los Angeles? Yeah, that was a a snap decision. Um, I was in Sydney and I was working at a movie channel. It was like three movie channels on cable. One was a classic channel, one was an indie channel, one was a new release channel. And I was hosting and producing and editing and writing because you had to do everything, you know, back in Australia. And uh, I would see the girl. So I produced the L.A. correspondent. She was Australian living over here. And I would see all the filmmakers and the people she got to speak to. And in Australia, you know, when you're living in Australia, it doesn't feel that far away, but it is really far away and people don't generally come to Australia, particularly for indie films, foreign films, the stuff that I'm interested in. So everybody's here in LA and, again, when you're in America and not so far away in Australia, then it's easier to go to film festivals. So I would see the interviews that she got to do and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. I was doing interviews back in Australia, but it would be the same people. Mark Wahlberg came to Australia so many times Zac Efron, Will Ferrell, all great people, but it was just a very limited number of stars who would make it over. And the Australian film industry is sadly quite small. That's why all the Aussies come over here, <laughs> steal all the jobs. Um, but <laughs> I decided one day I was actually doing a writing course in Paris. <laughs> wow. And I was doing a writing course in Paris because I had so much leave owing from my job uh, that they said you need to take at least a month off because this is costing us money because I'd never take holidays I loved it (laughs) I worked so hard you know and I was just in that flow of creating one show it was weekly shows that I would do so I'd once you finish one, you're on to the next. And so I didn't have time to train anyone. And so they said, you have to take a month off. And I thought it sounded very cinematic to go to Paris to do a writing course that, you know, I might be I'd meet the love of my life. <laughs> I didn't. But while I was there, <laughs> I was walking along the Seine one day and I just had this thought of like, I'm going to move to LA. I was, it was very clear, this like little inner voice. I don't believe in God, but if your people might call it God or spirit, the universe, whatever you want to call it, but it was just saying, you, you're going to move to LA. And I was like, I'm going to move. So I went back to Australia after the course and I had my performance review that you'd have every year. And they said, where do you see yourself in a year's time? And I said, in LA. <laughs> and they said, well, we've got the LA correspondent. You know, she's on a contract. There's no job for you there. And I said, that's okay. I'll make it happen. So I quit everything, got a visa, moved over with two suitcases, no savings. So not knowing anyone, no job prospects. Um, but just with that idea of like, this is going to happen. And I want to be here where everything is, where it's the center of the film universe, where you get to talk to all these great filmmakers, inspiring people, where everyone's in the industry. And everyone's out here trying to make it you know it's it's an inspiring place to be so it was the best move I ever made even though you know there were times when I didn't have enough money to eat but still it was all part of the story
0: Uh, We're going to go back to high school for a second. (laughs) So you mentioned that uh, in interviews that in high school, your passion for film initially grew from your desire to become a director. Mm -hmm. But you changed course because you felt the odds were too slim for female directors. We can imagine that a lot of other young girls felt that way, too. Do you have any uh, do you have any desire to direct today? And how do you think it's changing for young girls who want to grow up to be a director?
2: Yeah, because of the idea of the director being so male and being this tough leader and I was this shy introvert I thought I can't do this I, I no way I could get up and command a crew and I had Gillian Armstrong and Jane Campion to look to being Australian and we claim Jane as ours um, but uh, I just didn't see that many opportunities for women and I thought I'm not tough enough for that so I changed course now I think I found my true calling my true job and when I think about it in terms of the film club in terms of watching Bill Collins on at night time it's all makes sense you know even I used to I did a, a video in year 12 uh, my final school year where I had my little camcorder I go around to people and then I would get a friend to hold it and I go out to people with a pretend microphone in my ear and say where do you see yourself in 10 years time and interview them and so all that makes sense for what I'm doing now And I don't have the desire to direct now. I just don't think I have that kind of creative brain. Maybe producing would be more of my wheelhouse. I would love to give the opportunity to film directors and make their dream come true. I see film directors and I admire how much vision that they have to be able to pull off everything. Um, I just don't think that that's in me. But uh, I hope that now women get to see more more role models, more people being vocal about it, more opportunities being created, and they don't have that same feeling that I had back then. Even though I have found my right path, I hope that women don't get discouraged. And I think now more than ever is the right time for women to be getting into film and saying they want to be a director because the doors are opening. It's only a matter of time. Can you talk about your work with Filmstruck
1: and what its closing has meant to you? And how has the support for this beloved site motivated you for your next step?
2: Oh, it was amazing to see the outpouring of love for Filmstruck and all these filmmakers who had I didn't have any idea that they were subscribers, <laughs> you know, them banding together to try to save Filmstruck. So it was really sad. I didn't expect to get as emotional as I did about it. Uh, because for me, again, it was much more than a job, much more than myself. It was about the the mission that Filmstruck was trying to achieve, which was to make these films accessible and not make them daunting or pretentious, but making everybody want to see them and have access to see them. Because it's hard if you live in the middle of the country, you're not in LA or New York, to be able to see indie films. They don't come to theatres. Uh, Netflix is driven by algorithms so you know I love the Great British Bake Off but now that's all I get offered is cooking shows <laughs> and they often hide films that doing a good job with Roma you know pushing that out there but The Other Side of the Wind the Orson Wells film I wouldn't be able to find it unless I type it in. Uh, Amazon as well has so many great films but unless you know where to look you know it's so hard to find anything to watch on there. Uh, the thing about Filmstruck was that it was humans who love films curating movies that they recommend people watch. You put it into themes, making it very easy for people to navigate through. Uh, and so, it, yeah, it meant much more to me than just the loss of a job. It felt like it, it was saying something about the industry and where everything's going and how... If you don't make these films accessible, they slowly get pushed out of what's studied, what's uh, considered the film canon, uh, and often those films are directed by women and minorities, and they end up getting pushed to the side, the indie films, and so that narrows you know, what we look at in terms of film. But I'm so glad that the Criterion channel is coming back because that will help a lot and there's other great services as well. But because of that closing, I think it really solidified for me the need to, again, just keep talking about this, keep uh, doing what I can in my own little small part of the world to uh, make these films accessible, to encourage people to watch films, to to curate movies that people might enjoy. And and I always love hearing back from people if they didn't like my recommendation or if they have recommendations of their own. I just love that dialogue. So it's exciting that so many filmmakers were together to try to save Filmstruck and hopefully that'll mean something else will come up for it.
0: What is your vision for the future, both for the industry and your work?
2: <laughs> well, I'm I am optimistic for the industry. Even though it was sad to lose filmstruck, because of the amount of people who rose up against it, it makes me hopeful that there still is a place for indies and for art house films, foreign films, and classic films. So uh, for the industry, I just hope that it becomes more inclusive, that more people get opportunities. Because there's a misnomer that there's a lack of female film directors. There is no lack. There are so many there's just a lack of opportunities and they don't get the same opportunities as their male counterparts. So I hope that female directors, producers, writers, executives, people of colour all get a chance to share their stories, to be able to tell their stories so that each of us can experience their stories through their vision Uh, and I hope for me that I can keep doing what I'm doing I can stay on TCM till I'm old and gray (laughs) and I am just going to keep focused on again my little purpose in life and try to share the passion for film as much as I can. Well, your passion
0: has already inspired us yeah. to like oh, okay.
2: be so much more mm-hmm. active in, in which films
0: we're watching. I think you do you did a really good job talking about that at your book signing mm-hmm. of like just the purpose behind choosing what you're watching. Mm-hmm. And I feel like
2: yeah, it's yeah. exciting. And yeah. thank you guys because I feel like this is your mission. And you're using your platforms to share, and that helps so much. So thank you for doing it. <laughs> well, we
0: end every interview with our rapid response segment, 3, two, 1, action. Okay. So you can answer in a word or a couple words. That's all you need to give us. Okay. <laughs> okay. So three, the film that has been most influential or your favorite or the one that's popping into your brain right now? The Apartment.
1: Two, dream person you want to work with. Ava DuVernay. Me too.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too.
2: One, best advice you've ever received? Find your niche that you naturally love and become an expert in it.
1: Action. What are you most looking forward to right now?
2: I am looking forward to film festival season. <laughs> <laughs> 2019 dorky answer but it's true
1: (laughs) (laughs) and where can people follow you on instagram twitter website your book titles
2: yeah you can find me on instagram and twitter at alicia malone facebook i always forget about but i'm going to try to be better at alicia uh, alicia malone.com is my website and then my books are backwards and heels and the female gaze you can find them both on amazon or where good books are sold is that what with the expression? Old good yeah. books are yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, Or your local books are sold. Yeah, independent bookstore, yes, book indie really <laughs> bookstore. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: amazing. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: You can find us at afemalens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on
0: Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos are by Megan Cafferty. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.